Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Vision Rich. Now, welcome to Topical Yours on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. I'm your host, Georgia Shuler, and my guest today is Vivian Reed, a singer, dancer, actress, Broadway performer, and even a celebrity vocal teacher. Vivian Reed has just about done it all in her career. She is a two-time Tony Award nominee, and among her numerous awards are the Drama Desk Award, Theater World Award, Outer Critics Circle Award, 
NAACP Award and Torch Award, to name a few. She has appeared on Broadway in Bubbling Brown Sugar, Sophisticated Ladies, Roar of the Grease Paint, Smell of the Crowd, Blues in the Night, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, High Rollers, Showboat, Blues for an Alabama Sky, Crumbs from the Table of Joy, Pork Pie, and Cooking at the Cookery. She has appeared on The Tonight Show, The Today Show, and the ABC daytime drama One Life to Live. She has performed with the likes of Patti LaBelle, Ashford and Simpson, Sammy Davis Jr., Audra McDonald, Quincy Jones, and Bill Cosby. Her film credits include Heading for Broadway, El African with Catherine Deneuve, and La Rumba, where she portrayed the famed Josephine Baker. She has performed nationally and internationally and performed in Monaco before Princess Grace of or Monte Carlo, I should say, before Princess Grace of Monaco. Well, I could go on espousing this Reese credentials, but I have her here. So let's talk to the lady herself. Welcome to the <laughs> show, Vivian Reed. Well, thank you. Who's that you talking about? Who's that you were reading about? <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fine, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, you started off early in music, but was it your uh, initial? Did you was it your goal initially to be a classical singer? Oh yeah, initially yeah, because uh, my mom and my dad said. Uh, now this is what they said that I was making melodious tones at the age of three. I do not remember that, but I do remember my mother taking me to a voice teacher at the musical, um, the Pittsburgh Musical Institute, which doesn't exist anymore today. But then at the age of six, she took me, and um, and the teacher said that I was too young to start and to for my mother to bring me back in a couple of years. And so I started studying voice at the age of eight. Well, was that teacher uh, Romaine Russell? And how did yes, she uh, that was impact Rome. your life? Oh, I mean, she taught me everything when it came to classical music until I went to Juilliard. I mean, it was everything. She taught me everything. Um, you know, by the age of 13, I was singing in three languages and singing a lot of the very famous arias from different operas like Visidarte from uh, Tosca and Undeldi from Madame Butterfly. I mean, I was singing it all. But she was a great teacher, and the accompanist she had for the class, I believe her name was Margaret, was also a wonderful, wonderful lady who was a wonderful accompanist. Well, you mentioned Juilliard studying there, which is a famed school. How did you enjoy that, or did you? It was okay. You know, the uh, I went through three teachers. Uh, the first one she wanted to change my voice because she didn't understand how someone so young could have this big, rich voice. So she tried to thin it out. So I was not having her, her behind at all. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, Adolph swing, he, all he wanted to talk about was Florence Henderson. So I got rid of him too. And I ended up with this teacher named Hans Heinz, I think was his name. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was an okay experience. They, Really, I think they've lightened up a bit back, but then, back then, they were only about classical music. They didn't want you to venture into any other genres uh, of music. And so, when I would take, um, I worked at this little place called Pauline's Interlude. It was still, I was still singing classical music, and I was actually working there underage. 
And uh, I so happily told my teacher about it. And he had a fit. What? You're doing that? Are you crazy? You can't be doing that. Blah, 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 blah. So I was happy to leave his ass after a point, you know. <laughs> but anyway, Julia, but I still am glad that I went and um, and I learned a lot, uh, met some good people, some wonderful singers. And but while I was there, like the third year, my life, you know, i I was managed uh, by the uh, owners at the Apollo Theater, the Shipmans at the time, and Mr. Honey Coles. And um, so my life just started to take a, a different change in, in terms of a musical direction. And uh, then I got a recording contract. And by that time, I had well, speaking started. Speaking of that, hmm? that what did you say? say? Not only did you. Not only did you branch off from classical music, you did some rap, and you have a rap song called Fat Rap. If you don't mind, I'd like to play that for the audience. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this definitely shows your sense of humor. Oh, yeah. I want you to listen to this song that I prepared for you. It's a rap song. That's right. Rap song. Rap. It's a rap song. Rap song. Okay. And it's called... The fat rat. <laughs> the, Did you fat hear that? Rat. Yeah. the fat rat. Okay. You've been stuffing your face. Oh, now that I mean, Can you feel it? You settle around and collect the fat when you knew very well the cold bloody fat. That the more you eat, the more you grow. The more that you know it's going to show. So who told you to eat? And you know damn well that you gotta choose If it's poundage that you gonna do yeah. Now if you caught up in this trap You got bumps and lumps and overlap Get on your feet, jump and clap I welcome you to join the Fat rap, fat rap Fat rap, fat rap Now, you spend your money on a shrink And you swear to yourself, I don't eat a thing Yet you had the doctor wire up your jaw And found a way to drink milkshakes through the straw <laughs> There ain't nothing wrong with ain't the bathroom scale. You went from a small to a medium to a large, and you keep getting bigger because you're not in charge. Ooh. If you caught up in the trap, you got bumps and bumps that overlap. Get on your feet, jump and clap. I welcome you to join the fat rat, fat rat, fat rat, fat rat, You're running down the street to the pharmacy looking for that remedy. Now, the package says take two a day and watch that fat just roll away. Bullshit! I welcome you to join the fat rap. I admit that we all get weak sometimes, yeah, and it's hard just yeah, to keep yeah, ourselves yeah. in life. Don't make those trips to the fridge or there. Don't be a sneaky eater if you really care. Fat rap. Fat rap. You eating in between meals during the day, hoping that the pounds will stay away. But you better remember the fat rap. Every day you're letting out the same old thing because you're drowning your potatoes in sour cream. But you better remember what? Every night and it's ooh, too good. Won't stop yourself, although you know you should. But you better remember. Come on now.
force yourself to push away the place. Cause sooner or later it's gonna be too late. It's easy to forget when we lose our head when it comes to the table and it comes to the bed. Don't stuff yourself with everything you see. You should only eat what you wanna be. Fat rat.
skinny, classical singing girl, young girl. And he said, Vivian, you had something. He said, I couldn't put my finger on it, but it was something special. And he said, and I wanted to be a part of it, you know, and just to nourish whatever it is you had. And uh, he said, that's the reason. He said, you were very talented, even though it wasn't the kind of music we were doing at the Apollo. Now, eventually, I did get on the Apollo stage, but only when I was basically into that kind of singing. I don't even, I don't think I was still singing R&B, R&B. I think it was more or less what I could do with my voice. Um, I was, I did a show with Bill Cosby. Um, I met a lot of the greats, Dionne Warwick. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's the, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Lord, I was trying to remember the singer. Um, well, anyway, the OJs, the Temptations, they were all there. I watched them. They, When I wasn't in school, they made me watch those shows, you know, and I learned a lot well, just I would from think, watching. Mm-hmm. I would think that you would have to learn each genre and each style, like cabaret for nightclub and, and learning art, how to sing R&B. And, so does that it's require not, a lot of study? Yeah, but it's not a matter of learning how to sing R&B. All of those songs are like jazz is a is a feeling and a way of singing and things that you could do like mm-hmm. scatting and all of that. Now that you may well like when I did um, Sophisticated Ladies, I didn't know that there was a lot of scat in this one song, and I had never scatted before. So I I put on I had a bunch of albums here, Betty Bebop. Uh, Carter albums and um, Ella Fitzgerald and so I would play those walk around the apartment and then I called Honey one day and I said oh my god there's a lot of scat I mean I don't know how to scat he said Vivian listen he said scatting came about when Ella forgot the words or something and then she just started and then they call it gibberish and so I studied those singers and it was indeed gibberish but there was still a a way of doing it, you know, you just had to pick what you wanted to use. You know, people have different things that they say, different different words or not even words, but gibberish that they may uh, use most of the time and just skirt around that and embellish the, the melody and and not skirt around it, but embellish the melody and, um, and use those nonsensical words or gibberish, as it were, to, uh, to scat. And so once I figured that that's what that was all about. Then I would just practice it every day to instrumentals and what have you. And as far as R&B is concerned, which is very akin to gospel, I mean, they're both basically one and the same almost, except maybe lyric content. And um, jazz, a lot of jazz standards, and some of the first songs that Honey Coles made me learn were jazz standards. I didn't want to, but now I appreciate that. And he said, one day you'll thank me. And I was very grateful that he did have me learn those standards. But I think you have to be authentic. There are so many different kinds of R&B. But what I didn't want to be was a classical singer trying to sing R&B. I really went for trying to sing soul music. I really went for the jugular vein, which meant that my vocal folds were going to go through hell until they accepted what I was doing to them. I did not want to be that kind of classical singer who was singing R&B, but she sounded like a classical singer. I definitely didn't want that. And so it was a journey 
uh, a difficult journey. It sounds uh, like you time. threw yourself into anything and everything you do. So uh, doing musicals doesn't that require a dance? And didn't uh, Bubbling Brown Sugar require dance numbers? Yeah, um, how that came about. I was doing uh, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope in Chicago under the under the direction of Vinette Carroll. And so when I was leaving the show, she said, Vivian, when you get back to New York, she said, I want you to seriously think about studying dance. And she said, and don't study dance as a singer looking to move well. Study it as a dancer with a dancer's mentality, and that's what I did. So I studied dance for almost 25 years. Um, but, yes, nowadays you really do have to be a triple threat, um, and I was definitely a triple threat. But I worked hard. I didn't just – I took her advice. I just didn't go to class just to learn a few things that, so I could get by. I really seriously studied dance, ballet, the whole thing, took modern, tap. I didn't – you know, I studied. I really studied it. Mm-hmm. Well – Bubbling Brown Sugar was crucial in your career, correct? Yes. Uh, It was not the first musical I did. The first musical I did was a a show called That's Entertainment, and Clive Barnes put in the newspaper (laughs) when he reviewed it. That's Entertainment with a question mark. But I got really fabulous reviews from it. It was my very, very first musical. Um, And then Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope came second when I replaced Mickey Grant on Broadway. So Bubbling Brown Sugar actually was the third, but because it was a role that I created, because when they hired me, they didn't have a role. They just hired me because they liked my singing. So I had to go about creating a role, and I created it, you know, around what I could do. And that was, and I had been studying dance at that point for about a year and a half. So I picked the songs. Um, Danny, I went over the songs with Danny Holgate, what I wanted to sing. And I originally did not want to sing God Bless the Child because I thought that they were going to be expecting me to sing it like Billie Holiday, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to put my own spin on it. And he said, you can do it um, however you want. So I basically redid, so to speak, uh, God Bless the Child. It had never been heard uh, the way I sing it, it had never been heard uh, like that before, not like the way I sing it. Now you hear singers, you know, giving it a sort of R&B touch, but it was mostly very, very jazz, a la Billie Holiday, and the way she was singing it. Um, so they let me do that. Well, I, listened and to, uh, I, I listened to something, uh, a, a YouTube that you talked about adding some comedic uh, dance numbers I think there was one coming down the stairs. Coming down the stairs? Or you mean in Free Georgia Brown? You were walking on your toes or something? Yes, that was Free Georgia Brown. That was the intro to Free Georgia Brown. And um, the director really didn't want me to do it that way, but comedian. And so I would do things, and when the audience would laugh, I I felt at the time I'm going to keep that in. Now, did I look crazy? Probably, but the audience loved it. The director hated it. But the song got great reviews, and um, he never did really approve of that. I guess he wanted me to be very straight-laced doing the song, but it would not have had the effect that it had going up the steps just before I take off the 
the cape, throw the cape off to reveal this sexy red dress underneath. I think the crazier she was coming down the steps or up the steps, depending on where the show was, because it was one time when I came down the steps, another time on the, in New York I definitely came up from up the steps, like I was coming like from out of the subway. And I would just do this pigeon-toed walk, and the audience ate it up, which made it even much more extraordinary when I took off the cape because the contrast was huge. Whereas if I, if I had done it the way the director really wanted me to, it would not have been as exciting uh, when the cape came off. But he saw the reaction from the audience, and um, and the reviews reflected. So, you know, my choice, um, always um, commenting on the the humor and the comedy and all of that. And so he didn't put his foot down and say, look, I don't want you doing that. He didn't do that because he saw that it worked. Now, had it not worked, then maybe he would have had a point, but it did work. <laughs> so there you have it. Well, what did you think of the costumes? I mean, I saw you wear a lot of fabulous clothes. And I used to be associated with the Negro Ensemble Company, so I know Bernard Johnson. I knew of him. Yeah, Bernard so, Johnson, uh, oh, he was great. I, I think of him often. Such a great man, great, great, actually great uh, dancer and choreographer as well as being a great costumer. But um, I remember the first thing he wanted me to wear for so oh Lord for Sweet George Brown, it was scandalous. Baby, they would have locked my ass up. I was like, what are you nuts? I'm not wearing that thing, baby. It was a string here, a string there, a little string over my breast. I said, oh, hell no. And then my mother and father were still living, so I wasn't going to do that. Mm-mm. So this other girl named Karen, she had a song on the show. And anyway, the song was dropped, and she was wearing this white dress. And it was kind of sexy, actually. So Bernard said, what if we take her dress, because now she's not wearing it, she's not, the song is out of the show. He said, why don't we just dye that red? And so I was okay with that, with that particular um, style, because it was hal- uh, had a, um, a halter top and a high-low hem, and it was sexy. But when I did the shows in Europe, I redesigned and did a whole nother thing, a whole nother thing. Um, which was really very, very sexy. I mean, all my legs were out um, with a skirt and fabulous, fabulous. So I pushed, you know, pushed, I pushed it a little bit in, in Europe. Well, speaking of fashion, tell me about your own line, VJR. Oh, VJR scarves. Uh, my mother ponchos was too. a, yeah, and ponchos as well. Um, she was a fantastic uh, seamstress, and she taught me to sew when I was eight years old, and or no, I think it was ten. I mean, I was about ten years old, and I've always loved sewing, and I always wanted to do scarves, and I wasn't thinking ponchos at the time that I started the line, and then ponchos came about later, but. My scars are long, they're not skimpy, and they're in all kinds of fabrics, silks, uh, very fabulous polyesters, uh, rayon, cotton, and there's only one or two of a kind. I don't make, like, a lot of one 
kind of material in one color. I don't do that. So I may make two or three of uh, of a certain kind of fabric, then I'm on to something else. And I find the best polyesters and very weird fabric outside of New York, not in New York. New York is better for woolens, which I do men's scarves and very fine wool fabrics, and silks. They're great for silks and woolens, but for the crazy, like, patterns and textures, when it comes to polyesters, definitely outside of New York, like in places like Pittsburgh and, um, you know, up, upstate New York. I, wherever I travel, I'm always going looking for, for fabric. And uh, and I really well, enjoy it. And I'm, hmm? What stores are carrying that line? Only Etsy. I have my own store on Etsy. Um, I can't do anything in a store because I'm not going to mass produce because it'll make the merchandise. I just can't do that. It'll be too expensive for me to do, and I just cannot do it. And I think it'll be ex- really extraordinarily expensive for the customer, and I don't care to do that. Um, so it's not to say that if a store said, well, in fact, off-Broadway, before it closed, she was interested in carrying two or three pieces of mine, but she died, and then the store closed up. But I basically have my on, online store, bjrscarves.etsy.com, and that's where you can find all of all of my stuff in the ponchos. How the ponchos came about was I was in Pittsburgh visiting a friend, and I had made a poncho like a few days before, and I just put it on, and she says, oh, my God, what is that? I said, it's just a poncho I made up for myself. She said, oh, you should make that part of your line. I said, are you kidding me? And so she says, no, you should do it. And so next thing I knew, I had made up, oh, my God, maybe 300 ponchos or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and really all kinds of fabrics, like mesh, see-through fabrics, silks, polyesters, gorgeous. Mm. Yeah. So I like I like ponchos. Yeah. Mhm. Well, well, I assume um, learning songs, acting, and dancing take a lot of stamina. So do you have a health regime? Well, yes and no. I, I, more of a health regime like a few years ago, but when I have a show coming up, I really will get extremely disciplined. No sweets, none of that craziness. Because of the kind of gowns that I like to wear on stage, I like gowns with splits, and I like showing my legs, and so I make sure that my body is in good shape. Because if it's not, I'm not going to put on those gowns. But if it's not, I'm not going to even do the show. As long as, as long as I'm putting, you know, gowns on where I'm showing legs and what have you, then I'm going to make sure that my body stays in good shape. And I will exercise, and I do weight training as well. When I say not as much as before is I think since this doggone virus, COVID-19, and 20 and probably 21, <laughs> you yeah. know, people have been sitting around eating. That's why I put out the fat wrap because every time I would ask somebody, so how you doing? Girl, I can't stop just eating. I sit, And one day I'm in the bed, like late at night, and I'm saying, Every time I ask somebody about eat about what are they doing during this you know this 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 um, pandemic COVID nineteen yeah COVID nineteen this they say they're eating 
And so that's why wow. I decided to do the fat rap video because everybody was eating and it took off on, oh my God, on Facebook. It just took off. It was funny as hell and got a lot of comments, a lot of views, you know, so, but I do become disciplined. So I how do. are you, how are you coping with COVID-19? You're wearing the mask and distancing and all the all time, that. I, 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 all the time. I don't go out. I read except, about the flu. Huh? I, I, I read about in was it nineteen eighteen they they had the the same kind of flu or something. Yeah, the flu, yes. It, it was a big one. Yes. It went. yes. And this is very shoot, I think when this is all said and done, this is probably bigger than that. You know? Um but I only go to the grocery store and come back and if a scarf or a poncho sells then I will go to the post office. But other than that, those are the two places I go, and that's very infrequently. I go for groceries like once every two weeks perhaps, and most of the time I'm in inside and doing some writing, and I pulled out a lot of fabric that hadn't been sewn up, did that, made a lot of scarves, more ponchos and more poncho jackets because I also have poncho jackets. And, nice. um Yeah, I've just been doing a lot, learning things and doing stuff and you know, just reading up on stuff that I didn't know about. I've been making good use of the time. And, yes, I have been watching a lot of television as as everyone. But it's it's been difficult. I feel so bad for a lot of these small businesses and restaurants and, and yeah. people who just need to go to work. I think that's that's the worst thing as far as I'm concerned, are people who are barely making it and now they they don't have a job. What do they do? It's so terrible what is going on. And then I think about all of those kids down at the border who were separated from their parents. What do they do? You know, because some of them I don't think have, a lot of them haven't been reunited with their with their families. So, and then they're in tight quarters. Uh, how many of, of those kids have gotten the virus? It's. I think this has affected practically Everything that has to do with our life, living, I think it has affected everything. I agree. You I know, agree. it's it's so devastating that this is going on, and and right now I don't even see an end to it. I think New York is doing better because we abided, most of us abided by the rules that um, Governor Cuomo put out. You know, and that uh, was to stay at home, and whenever you go out, put on a mask. And there were times when I looked out my window, honey, there was not a car on the street. So we, I know in Manhattan, a lot of us followed the rules. We followed and did what we were supposed to do. And I think that's why uh, coming down here, you know, as opposed to it going up in other places where there are more deaths and more people with the virus. So I think there's a lot to be said uh, for not going out if you – if you don't have to, and if you do, please put on a mask. That's so important so that you're, you keep everyone else safe and you keep yourself safe. But you know what's funny because and I was saying, oh, oh, honey, I put on, um, I have plastic my plastic box. gloves over there. I have boxes of them. I put on plastic gloves mm-hmm. every time I go out. And when I come in, I take them off. Then I go wash my hands for 20 seconds, and then I spray you know, disinfect not disinfectant. What is it called? Yeah, I guess. Um, what do you, yeah, I guess so. The little thing that you put on your hands. Disinfect. Yeah, yeah, disinfectant. And I use all of that stuff, you know, to make sure that I don't get sick because I don't want to get sick. 
you know, and, and the city is so many. I was wondering, how do they, how would they know when it's gone? How, how, that I can't understand. I don't know. I mean, there are, there are, well, there are several companies working on um, vaccines. Well, I don't know when they're going to be ready because you got to do the trial. You know, you, you have your test individuals where you, where you're going to inject them with whatever you're injecting them with. And then you have to see if it works. And from I heard something this morning where they there's a Moderna and I think Pfizer, um, they've started to inject people with whatever they've come up with. And but then becomes a waiting period. And who, who, who is to say what that how long that waiting period is? Is it going to be a year? And then you don't know if the vaccine is going to work. Is it going to work only temporarily? Is it going to work, you know, like other um, vaccinations that we've had to get, like for smallpox and what have you? I mean, you just don't know because it seems to me like working on a vaccine takes years. And they're talking about doing this like basically overnight. How do you do that? I don't understand how you would do that, something like that. According to Uh, Fauci, you can't. According to who? And I believe him. I definitely would listen to Dr. Fauci over anybody else, you know, because this is is his specialty. And if he says that, then I believe him. I think we probably should have followed him and Cuomo and people who were talking like that because they made sense. Why would you want to go out to a party where you know everybody's going to be close, they're going to be dancing, shouting, and and why would you want to put yourself in that kind of uh, environment only to stand at risk of of becoming sick? I mean that's crazy. I mean, well, that's why I don't agree with sending the kids back to school because oh, absolutely not. Oh, gather together. I mean, I, and then the I don't have home. kids. That, I, I don't have kids, but rest assured, baby, if I had kids, their asses would not be going to school. Uh uh-uh. uh No, that's too risky. That is way way too risky because they're kids. And bringing it back to the they're, family. Back to the family, and you know they they're not going to keep those masks on all day. They're not going to do it. They're kids. They're going to be playing with each other, That's pulling exactly each other with the right. mask down. You know, kids are going to be kids. You know how we were when we were kids. That's what we do. That's what kids do. Exactly. You know, so I, I totally disagree with that. And I, I hope that parents will just think, you know, more and about doing that. You know, think a lot more well, before they do something like a, that. Well, let's move on to another subject. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you um for those who wonder how a show is put together, can you sh- share the uh, rehearsal process and the casting process and how important well, the reviews are? No, which show, or which show are we talking about? Reality. My personal? Are we talking about my personal one-woman show? Or are we talking about theater? Because the two are different. Well, we're talking about theater. Okay. For example, you for theater, like the the, the writers are always there to give a review. And sometimes that might cause jealousy. So what do you mean the writers are always there to give, give a review? When you say writers, are you talking about which critics. writers are you referring to? Critics? Critics. Oh, yeah, where the critics come, yeah. Um, well, you know, you can write a show and think that you have the best thing since chocolate cake, but the critics may not think so because I've seen shows that I thoroughly enjoyed that the critics, and I'm talking about multi-million-dollar shows, fifteen, twenty, thirty-million-dollar shows, that were destroyed by a critic's pen. So you can't, you you never can tell, and unjustifiably so too, down through the years. 
Um, it, it's happened to shows um, where it shouldn't happen, shouldn't have happened, but it did. But the process, a writer comes up with a show, composers, lyricists, person for the dialogue, whoever, you, could, you got your composers for the songs and the lyricists for the songs, and then you have your writer, you know, and sometimes they're all one person and sometimes it's divvied up. So then they will, after they've gotten their 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 show together in terms of writing it, then they want to do a reading of it. A reading is when they hire mm. a cast to use stands, and they have, there's an invited um, audience, and you do your reading. You don't have to mem- the, the cast don't have to memorize anything, and there's usually a talk back for suggestions or comments, uh, question and answer, whatever. And then after that. Then, if you get the money, you do a showcase. Now you're looking for people to put mm. money into the show, say like Bubbling Brown Sugar. When we were up at the Amas Theater, which was then on 86th Street, we did a showcase over a period of three weeks, and we got the money to go to Broadway, but first we went out on the road. So you get your money, then you go into rehearsal. Rehearsal periods usually for theater pieces, musicals, uh, and I would venture to say probably uh, plays as well, usually eight hours a day with an hour off for lunch, and it's usually over a four-week period, although I have mounted a show in on an amateur level with a theater group in Pittsburgh in two and a half weeks. Don't ask me how I did it, but we were able to pull it off. So, okay, so then you go through your rehearsal period, and the last week of that rehearsal you have what you call a tech run-through and rehearsal, where other parts of the production staff, like your lighting, your sound, your uh, set designer, your costume designer, like Bernard Johnson was with Bubbling Brown Sugar, they come into play. So they're going to watch the show, and they're going to make notes. And they come into play actually sooner than that, because they will come into the room doing rehearsal and be closely... um, uh, talking with the director to understand the, the director, whether it's he or she, his their vision. What are you seeing? How are you seeing this? So there's a lot of collab work done before that technique. By the time the the, the, the um, tech run through spins, which is toward the end, just before opening. You already have your costumes. You know what you're wearing. And in terms of makeup, most people do their own makeup. But like when I did Showboat, there was aging makeup involved because I had to be 80-some years old. So someone was brought in to do that, and then eventually they taught me how to do it. So I learned how to do that. And then you have previews, which usually previews, the tickets are far far less, I would say, much less than the tickets, for, um, the cost, the price of tickets once you've opened now, here's the trick with writers, with critics. It used to be that the opening day was, that was the day of opening. That's when all the people would come out, the celebrities, the critics, ah, 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 not anymore. Usually critics really? will sneak in and come doing previews. That's why, honey, I always make sure my shit's together, always, by opening preview night, preview night. My stuff has got to be together because you don't know when the critics are going to come. It's no guarantee that they're going to wait until opening night. There is no guarantee at all. And nine times out of ten, they'll come before. And there have been a lot of performers 
to be caught off because they think that they can shuck and jive, even though there's an audience in front of you. See, to me, as a performer, the type of performer that I am, I don't care if there's one person, 100, 1,000, or 10,000. I'm going to give you the best that I, that I have. So I want to be on top of my game day one in front of an audience. I don't want to wait till opening night. Oh, now, now it's opening night. I'm going to shine. Now I'm going to show them what I got. No. You want to be on top of your game by the first moment that you go in front of audience. And then opening night comes. And then after that, basically the show is frozen. Now they will call in, they will call rehearsals after that if there's somebody, if an understudy needs to have rehearsals or somebody new is coming into the show where they need to brush up on, on certain things. And there's dance captains. A dance captain makes sure that all of the work um, that the choreographer has done is kept clean and accurate and because as actors, we tend to change things after a while, and sometimes we don't even know that we're changing them. Maybe it's because we're doing the same thing over and over. And we do eight shows a week. That's equity. That's our union rule is that we do eight shows a week. And um, wow. that's how a show is put together. Yeah. Well, thank you, because I think a lot of people didn't know, so now we do. And I'm oh, glad it's a you job. It's, not, it's intense. It's no, it's, it's no joke. That's why I think... When a lot of uh, people want to come into show business because either they go into a shower where in the bathroom is the best kind of reverb you can get because it's a natural reverberation and you're in the shower and you're thinking you sing all great. I ain't never sang a note in your life, but because to your ear you sound great, you go in the shower. Oh, I think I want to be a singer. Oh, really? You think that little of our business that you can just up and say you think you want to be a singer, you don't know, you've not gone and you've not thought out a you know, a, a consultation as to whether you have anything to offer, you know. So there's a lot of people like that who just think they can come into show business. But show business is not easy, not by any stretch. Well, speaking of novice coming into the business, uh, do you think that everyone should know about the business of show business before Absolutely. so they don't get taken advantage of? Absolutely. There's so much out there to read. I mean, I was very fortunate because I was being managed by the owners of the Apollo Theater and Mr. Honey Cole. Bobby Schiffman taught me all about the business, all of the bi- about the business of show business, and Honey Cole taught me about the stage. So I'm pretty astute when it comes to business, because people can take advantage of you. But I think today, though, most of the performers, especially recording artists, they're pretty much well-informed and on top of their game and in control of their own work and their own writing. And I'm, I was so happy to see that because it used to be that the record companies would make every excuse in the world not to pay you royalties because, well, we had to pay this and we had to pay that, and you'll get your money after we recoup our expenses. You know, that's what they say. And sometimes you never see any money from the sales of records. But now it's done uh, so much differently, and it's changed in the last 30 years, So, and I'm happy to see that. Well, tell me about your nightclub act. Well, I've created four one-woman shows, and the first was called An Evening with Vivian Reed, which was kind of very eclectic. It had a lot of R&B, funk, uh, some Broadway, some classical, jazz, blues. And then the second show was called um, Standards and More, All Standards. 
and um, that was a fun show. And then the third show was the Lena Horn show, hmm. and I didn't think of that on my own. I should tell you, a producer called and he said, "Vivian Lena Horn Centennial is coming up, and I think you should put a show together because she was very." She sent over some costumes um, in a trunk to the Apollo for me. Her uncle, Mr. Burkhorn, used to uh, be the accountant for the Apollo Theater. So Bobby asked Burke um, to ask Lena if she had any costumes or evening gowns that she wasn't wearing, would she consider giving them to this young budding artist? And she sent over this trunk. So I would, I will ever be so grateful to her and so fond of her. Well, I was always fond of her because I thought she was uh, an amazing artist. But for her to do something like that was just beyond uh, generosity. So, um, yeah, so that's what happened. You know, they taught me they taught me everything about business, and I think it really behooves people coming into the business if they're taking it seriously just to learn the business of it, learn about contracts and how they're done. I don't think any artist should just solely depend on an agent to submit them for in and everything. I think the artist needs to have a conversation, have, needs to have dialogue, with the agent, this is what I would like to go in for, and this is what I would not like to go in for. You see, my agent just could not send me in for in in and everything. It wasn't going to happen because there's certain things that I didn't, I didn't care to do. And um, so I think that's a reasonable dialogue to have with your agent so that you all are both on the Look, same page. Well, you so like that's to give important. back. And, yeah, uh, well, I do. You, do um, you teach, mm-hmm. right? You're teaching at Marymount yeah, Manhattan College? Yeah, I teach College? at Marymount, and I also taught at Berkeley College of Music for two and a half years. But this is only with the understanding that they understand before I start that I am a performer. That is foremost. That's my gift from God. So I have a show that I want to do. I'm going to do that show. And both times they said, no problem, you know, just come back when you're finished. You know, like, for instance, Last semester, that last fall, I was not around. I did not teach for Marymount because I was in in uh, Houston, Texas, doing a musical, a book musical, and I played an 87-year-old grandmother. And um, Eileen uh, Morris was the director, and she's fabulous. I had met her years before, and she called me and asked me to first come do a reading in that preceding summer, and then she said if they got the money, you know, to pay for my salary, would I come back? And I told her that I would. So they got it, and so I went back, and I was there for three months. I think, let's see, October, November, December. Yeah, three months, three months. It was wonderful. I had a wonderful time. And then well, I started back up. Well, of all the things you've done, that, of all the things you've done and the people you have met, is there anything or anyone that stands out as far as impacting your life? No, not really, because um, I will, well, let's talk about uh, Roberta Peters, who was a classical singer. I would say when I went to see her concert, I was a kid. I think I was, what, 10 years old or something. And when I saw her curtsy, <laughs> I never saw anything like that. My Lord. I said, oh, I want a curtsy like that. 
So I did that curtsy for the next 10 years, the way she curtsied. It was just mm-hmm. so wonderful. But, no, I think I have seen performances that, you know how I'm impacted. Let me tell you, when I can go, when I go see a show and a performer touches me because they have delivered everything that they intended to, everything about them, whether it's as an actress or as a singer or both, actor, then you leave an impact. You impact me. For instance, when I saw Epatha Merkerson do, and that's the lady, the actress from Law and & Order, and she's now on Chicago Med, I think, and Chicago MD or something like that. And she also has come to a couple of my shows. But when I saw her do Lady Day at the Emerson Bar and Grill, she made me cry when she sang God Bless the Child because her acting is just so incredible. She just threw herself into that song. And you just believed her during the whole play, musical, whatever you want to call that. You just believed her. When I saw Cynthia Erivo in uh, The Color Purple, just absolutely breathtakingly amazing. Not only is she a gifted singer, but she's a gifted actress. But you know what? You can take both of those things, and neither one would amount to anything if you don't put something behind it. It's like a dancer who can do 80 gazillion pirouettes who could develop their leg, you know, way up high and do incredible things with their body. But if there's nothing behind it, if there's nothing that's coming from inside, no meaning, means nothing. So I've heard a lot of great singers couldn't make my toe move, and I've heard ho-hum singers make me cry. So I, that's the joy for me when someone has left an impression when I walk away from their show and I'm filled with emotion, be it laughter or tears or whatever, then they have done their job. They were committed. They're committed. And that's, I think I love that more than anything. I mean, than anything. I mean, I have my own way of doing things, so I've never let another artist, even one that I really care for, care for, influence me, because Vivian Reed is going to be Vivian Reed. Um, I have in my young days, while being managed by Bobby, looked at things on other performers and saw what worked and what didn't work. Most of the time at the Apollo, most of what they did worked. But you would go see other performances and say, ooh, I'd never do that. You know, oh, God, what are they doing? So from that standpoint or viewpoint, that's where the impact comes in. But other than that, I, I do things my way. Um, I, don't, I don't let any other influences come into it, not really. Because We're I'm, coming I'm close so... to the end of the show. Oh, okay. So I, I want to ask you how people that are interested in knowing more about you could find you. I know you're on YouTube. I've seen several of your I'm on your YouTube. I'm on I'm on Facebook, I'm on uh, Instagram, very little on Twitter, 
Um, but definitely on Facebook, they could get in touch. I do have a thing. I don't know when it's going to be. I'll try to let you know when I find out. It's called Metropolitan Zoom, and that's when there's an audience, mm. audience, and you see them clapping and the whole thing. And so oh. I'm, I'll be doing that from my home, but I'm going to do it where it really looks like I'm in a nightclub. And I'll probably won't do it until probably the the beginning of of Jan of January of September. Um, I think I won't do it before then. But that's going to be the next thing because everybody's doing everything. It's all virtual because you can't go anywhere. I had a couple yeah. shows that were booked and I had to cancel both of those shows. So I will definitely be here. But I'm going to start doing this thing online, not often. But I will be doing a concert at some point, and so people should look out. And the, the, what's special about the way they want to do it is that people, my fans from other countries, will be able to see me now. Right. You know, that's and that's 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 what's great because in New York, who's going to fly in from Paris or Germany? You know, <laughs> so exactly. this will be special. This will, this that'll be really really special. Well, now we're running out of time, and the curtain is about to fall. But before oh. we we close, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to mention? Girl, this has been a great interview. I mean, you're you're excellent. You have asked some wonderful questions. Thank you. Um, and uh, no, I I think we didn't talk about my love life, but there's no love life to talk about. <laughs> well, it's beautiful. And what legs? Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. But, no, I, you did it, girl. We we touched on a lot of good stuff. And to the audience, thank you so much for listening in. And I hope I've, you know, said some things that meant something and that were important to you. <laughs> well, I'm going to send you a link to the show so you'll be able to hear it yourself. Okay. And I, uh, I want to thank you for being my guest today. Oh, absolutely, Deandra. It's my pleasure to have you, and I want to thank, thank my you. listeners for making my topic topically yours. And this is the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul, and I'm going to end the show with Vivian singing, If You Believe. Oh. And it's important to believe in yourself. So here Yes, we go. it is. I love that song. Thank <laughs> you.
Network Rainbow Soul.